Well, this is, again, the fourth week of Advent. Uh, And this passage that we're going to look at today, uh, it was uh, in seminary, one of the favorite passages that we studied for a lot of reasons. Just the pure literary and just the poetic beauty of it in the Hebrew was was so stunning. It really just kind of opened my eyes and and made me really appreciate uh, the poetic beauty of the Hebrew, especially Isaiah, who was just obviously highly educated, highly skilled, and uh, just um, capable in, in writing great literature and writing great poetry. Um, but even more than that, it's just this, this, this passage we're about to study, uh, it, it really looks at this, the whole scope of history between the two advents, from the first advent of Christ through to the second advent of Christ, uh, it looks at all of that time period. So, uh, somewhere around 700 years before the birth of Jesus, uh, Isaiah foretold not only the coming of the first advent, but also the coming of the second advent. And then in the midst of that, uh, he tells us really the purpose of history, the meaning of life, and the meaning of suffering. Not bad for 11 verses in the middle of, of the Bible, right? So see if you can uh, start to pick up on that as we read this. Uh, would you please stand as uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word? This is uh, cha- uh, Isaiah chapter 27, verses 2 through 13. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them, or I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contend with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sins. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces... No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. And when its bows are dry, they are broken, and women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will have no compassion on them. And he who formed them will show them no favor. But in that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria, and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, the panorama of history it gives us, Lord, but the 
also the way it reveals your heart to us, Lord. It shows us your character, how you are merciful, you are slow to anger, ever reaching out even to your enemies for reconciliation, that you have provided everything for salvation for your people. Lord, and that you are even now looking after us, that you are delighted over us, singing songs of delight and salvation over us as you care for us, as you provide for us, and as you protect us, Lord. And we pray that we would see that, that you would stir our hearts at the beauty of your character, and especially help us to see Jesus as we seek to understand, Lord. Please give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I had a while ago ran into uh, uh, someone was telling me about a class. Uh, it was a, a, at a major university, secular professor, not a Christian, who was teaching a class on the contributions of Christianity throughout, uh, throughout the ages, all of the things that really Christianity in the church has, uh, has done uh, that are still present in our culture. For example, uh, he brought out this the concept that forgiveness itself is a uniquely Christian concept in, in, uh, against uh, what prior in the world was a value of honor uh, and would make people morally bound to vengeance. Uh, the fact that we are not, uh, that our culture is not a vengeance culture is uniquely a Christian contribution. Uh, also, he brought up how, about the, the fact of or the thought of inalienable human rights uh, being a uniquely Christian ideal uh, in contrast to just the sheer will to power. Whoever was most powerful got to make the rules over all things. And that, that simple understanding really led the way for uh, the church through that idea to bring in and to pave the way for the demolition of slavery. It refined, redefined women and children as people with equal rights built hospitals, charities, built universities, and served as the single greatest inspiration for the arts, for architecture, uh, for music, and for literature. Uh, And not only that, like it or not, we still uh, mark time itself by the birth of Christ. The birth of Jesus splits our calendar in half, and we still measure our time by the creation ordinance of a seven-day week. It's all around us. And the reason, really, that this professor did that was not to, uh, you know, he wasn't a Christian. He was, he was really trying to shock his students into realizing just how Christianized they were. All of this, the, his, uh, you know, very progressive college students uh, had, were just kind of un- uncritically accepted all of these Christian contributions and values and were really operating in a lot of ways uh, in, in a Christian context and having hijacked and utilized Christian understandings that make uh, culture beautiful. Uh, and on the other, on the, on, the, on, the, on the flip side, what maybe he was trying to show or not, but he was trying to show what exactly kind of violent and unjust world we would live in if we truly were as culturally pagan as we profess to be. Uh, and as amazing as that 
stuff is, and it is, it is amazing and beautiful. Uh, there's another, really, this, uh, this text, the centerpiece of this text is talking about Jacob. When days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. What that class is really showing is that no matter how you slice it, like it or not, you have to admit the fact that you just can't get away from the fact that over the last 2,000 years, Jacob has taken root and Israel has blossomed and put forth shoots and spread and filled the whole world with fruit. And as amazing as those things are, they're really, all the things I just mentioned, just byproducts of the real intent of God, the real project of God in the world, the real meaning of that central verse in that passage, which is uh, he is growing and harvesting the fruit of this, the, the real fruit in that passage are the sons and daughters of God being grafted into Christ, being grown through our suffering in the world uh, and being harvested for the world to come. That's really what this passage is really all about talking about that process of history between the two advents that God is accomplishing in the world. So the big idea, big idea of this passage is simply this, that between the advents, God is grafting us into Christ, he is growing us through suffering, and he is gleaning us for eternal life. God, between the advents, is grafting us into Christ, he is growing us through suffering, and he's gleaning us for eternal life. Let's look at that one part at a time. First, God is grafting us into Christ. There is this, uh, if, you, if you have a garden or a backyard, you become, you know, whether you like it or not, familiar with invasive species of plants, right? Probably the most common one is crabgrass. When we moved into our, the house that we got, they had just laid all this beautiful sod, it was green and rich grass, and, and uh, before you knew it, without doing anything, all of a sudden, without even really noticing, all of a sudden, all that beautiful rich grass slowly just became crabgrass, as the crabgrass came in and took over our beautiful lawn in, in, in its invasiveness, and destroyed it, and made it just brown in the winter and time, and just ugly, right? And that that invasiveness is really more of a, it's a good, it's a picture of like sin and destruction in the world. But there are other invasive species uh, that are different. There's a, I have wanted to, for, I've seen, I saw this plant at our neighbor's house that is called Chinese wisteria. And it produces these beautiful purple and lavender fragrant flowers that, that kind of hang down and they smell beautiful and they're just absolutely stunning. Uh, the problem with Chinese wisteria is that it will also take over your yard. It's an invasive species and it will grow so fast, the vine will grow so fast and put forth so many shoots and bows that it will cover your whole, your whole yard and take over your whole yard and really overtake it, uh, invasive overtaking beauty. And that's a good picture. That's like a picture of the church. Listen, listen to what this verse says again. This is the central verse in this passage, verse 6. It says, In days to come, Jacob shall take root Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. This is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament because it, was, it played a, a deep part in my developing understanding of what the Old Testament was all about. 
when I uh, understood that this verse was talking about the coming of Christ and then the, and then, and then the church from Jesus filling the whole world and filling the whole world full of fruit, it gave, uh, it gave me a sense of hope and of appreciation of what God is doing now. Listen to what, let me, let me explain what exactly is happening in this verse, that there's a, a change in the persons of the verse. It says, it says this, literal translation would be, he, Jacob, will take root, he, Israel, will blossom and put forth shoots, and then they, the shoots, branches, will fill the whole world full of fruit. So the picture of is this vine that's planted deeply in the earth and the vine then sprouts forward and all these little shoots and branches come off of the vine that are supported by the vine filling the whole world with fruit, which is exactly what Jesus says when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. It's the same idea. And we as Gentiles are becoming part of that vine Paul says in Romans 11 that God is grafting us into that vine in our salvation as wild uh, olive branches being grafted into the natural vine. And so this picture is of the church, of Jesus, the root, the true Israel being planted in the earth, growing out as a vine, and then branches growing out with him and filling the whole world with fruit in this age. And the, char- the character of that, this age is this. The character of this age that's presented in this is that, that God is, is delighted over the garden. Really, when it says pleasant garden, I think a better translation of that is, a, is the garden of God's delight. And the reason that God is delighted over that is because his wrath is satisfied. It says, my have no more wrath. It doesn't get into the details of why there's no more wrath, but we know from the collective Bible and from the New Testament that the death of Christ satisfied the wrath of God on the cross so that we are now uh, pleasing to him in every way. And it says that we have the water, that God constantly waters it, is a picture of God's provision for us. And it says in every moment, God is watering us. And it says God is protecting us. He is keeping us, guarding over us, night and day. And then it finishes, that section finishes with God's open offer of salvation to his enemies. If anyone would lay a hold of the protection, whoever, whosoever would take hold of the refuge that God provides would be saved. And this is a picture. All of that together gives us this clear and beautiful picture of the church age written 700 years before the coming of Jesus. All those things are true about the world we now live in, which is in itself, in my mind, astonishing. Because we talk, look, we talk a lot about the prophecies of the coming of Jesus uh, and how important those are for establishing the credibility of the text. But this, this stream of prophecy where these prophets, 700 years before Jesus came, are not only predicting uh, that, that he would come, but also that the religion of Israel, the basic religion of the worship of the God of Israel, would fill the whole earth. Now think about that. That was an astonishing claim at that time. Israel was not a great power. There was one period, a couple hundred years, 
during a decline of Assyria in the north and Egypt in the south, where Israel was a power. But other than that, Israel pretty much served as the parking lot for the Egyptian and Assyrian armies as they came together to war over one another. Israel was a backwater, second-rate kingdom, and they worshipped this tribal deity, and yet all of these prophets are saying, in days to come, the whole world is going to worship the God of Israel. And that happened. That actually happened. That gives us tons of, 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 of assurance of God's word. Tons of assurance that if God is able to accurately predict to that degree of what is going to happen in the future, that his word is basically reliable. That what he says about morality is basically reliable. And that what he says about his promises for us are absolutely reliable. But even uh, in addition to that, I mean, those are big ticket, you know, abstract ideas that, that we can get about God's reliability. But what this really says to us, if it's true that God's wrath is satisfied, our biggest problem is taken care of by Christ, if it's really true that God is delighting over us, if it's really true that God is promising to give us his provision in every minute, every moment of the day, if it's true that God's promise has to be, to be protecting us night and day, never-ending protection and provision, uh, if all that's true, what that means for us, what it means for you, is that, is that we have everything we need right now to be okay. We have everything we need right now to be okay. Now maybe you're saying, wait a minute, but, wait Pastor Rob, but you don't understand, I need, or I have to, or the reality, if we really believe this, there may be things you want, there may be things we really desire to have, there may be good things. Uh, It may also be possible that we have let good things that we want elevate themselves to a desire of have to have and God not giving them to us causes us to begin to be upset with him and becoming angry and resentful at him which separates us from him. But if this is true, what it means is that we have right now everything we need to be okay. And Jesus says the same thing. This is what he says. You know, in that passage Jesus is talking about, he says, look at the birds of the air. God gives them everything they need. How much more precious are you than the birds? Look at the lilies of the field, how beautiful and ornate. Look at the Chinese wisteria hanging on the trellises, how gorgeous that is. Even more beautiful than Solomon in all of his royal splendor. And he says, if God provides that much care for the birds and for the flowers, how much more is he going to care for you? And he says, therefore, don't be anxious for anything. Don't run around saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? What neighborhood should we live in? What car should we drive? What clothes must we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What would it look like if we really bought that? What would it look like if we really, really believed that? 
in the, in the struggle and the anxiety of the, of the wants and the desires that we have and the, just the constant in-pressing pressure of our culture that says we have to be this, we have to look like that, we have to present like this. In the midst of all that, if we were really people who could just kind of take a deep breath and say, God has given me everything I need in this moment to be okay. God has given me everything I need right now to be okay. How much anxiety would just kind of melt away? You know, I'm not talking about selling all your stuff and moving into a cave, right? That's taking it to the way crazy extreme on the other side. But I am saying, you know, and now I'm not saying it's bad to have things. God blesses us with wonderful things. What I'm saying is we can hold those things loosely. Saying this is God's gift to us for this season. And whatever he gives me is his good pleasure. It is according to his perfect will. And I can be content in that right now. Right now. That's what, that's what faith in action, what trust really looks like in the everyday. Now maybe some of you are saying, look, uh, if that's true, maybe you're saying, you're saying, look, you're saying God is giving me moment by moment provision and moment by moment protection. Maybe you're saying, why is it then that I've got so much trouble? Why do I have so much trouble? And the answer, the short answer is, is, is that that trouble is oftentimes how God gives us what we really need. And that's the second part. The second part of this is God is growing us through suffering. God is growing us through suffering. I was just uh, reading a, an article in Christianity Today uh, about a guy named Nate Collins. He uh, is a, a leader uh, in... Um, He's a man who's same-sex attracted, who's also who's Christian. He's married to a woman. They have children, uh, and he has. In, in, sometimes he's described as the ongoing temptation and struggle that he has uh, sexually to to maintain purity, to maintain honoring God, and honoring God with his body in in a biblical sexual ethic. That that stress and that pressure he ha- has sometimes described as a gift. And people are like trip out on that. They're like, wait a minute, you're saying that being gay is a gift. And he's saying, he says, he says, no. When he explained it in this article, he said, he said, it reminded me, it reminds me, it reminds me of a quote by Alexander uh, Solzhenitsyn in, the, in the, his novel, Gulag Archipelago, where he talks about, he talks about his experience of being in this Russian prison. Uh, and though it was, unimaginably hard and trying. Uh, It was, at the end, the thing that he was really the most grateful for. And there's this quote in the book where he says, he goes, he says, bless you, prison. Bless you, prison, for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. Let me read that again. I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. Listen to what God says. 
Look at what the prophet says in verse 7 through 9. This is the beautiful poetic part of the Hebrew passage. Um, You can pick up some of it in the English, but he says this. He says, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, you exile, by exile, you contend with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. And therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. The big idea, big idea in that passage is that God is saying to his people who are often suffering and struggling, especially struggling and suffering against their own sin, he's saying that there is a qualitative and quantitative difference between his judgment of the world and his discipline or chastisement of his children, even when sometimes in our eyes, from our perspective, it may look exactly the same. Uh, God exiled Israel from their land, not as an act of punishment, so much as an act of discipline, as an act of growing them. And, and this, can be, this verse can be really confusing because it talks about, uh, it says atone, it says, um, it says in this, you know, therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And we all automatically think about that as the atonement of Christ over our sin. But really it's, it's using uh, the verb in the term of, of purging or by trouble uh, breaking us from our addictions to sensuality and materialness in the world. It's used in the same way other places. Proverbs 16.6 6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, Iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of God, one turns away from evil. It's talking about how God uses discipline, uses adversity, uh, will bring carefully guided and engineered trouble into our lives as a way to break us of clinging on to things that are death. To peel our fingers off of them so that we can turn to him and to life and to blessing and to peace that we can only experience through being empty in humility and then becoming transparent channels of divine life and power into the world. That's what we are created to be. And we grab for all these other little things uh, to find immediate satisfaction in life, to... um, to buy into all those things the world tells us, what we have to be, what we have to look like, how we have to present ourselves. And those things crush the spirit. Those things separate us from power. And so what this big idea of this, really, uh, is that God, in the life of Israel, used the exile, and this is encompassing, it's talking about all the little Uh, all the little invasions that they suffered through as well as the big exile into Assyria to discipline Israel, to break them of their addiction and idolatries that stood in the way of peace and humble submission and trust in God's will. Which led to protection and providence and power. And God is and does do the same thing with us. He does the same thing with us, the same thing in his church. 
big picture aspects of this too. I'm personally convinced that God is stripping away our political power and social status in the world because they become idols to us in the church. We are more relying on those things than we are in simple trust in God and prayer and faith and fasting being in his presence and serving him and he I think is stripping those things away from us and we're terrified about it because we feel our fingers being just pulled off of these things that we're trusting in but he's doing it to bring us and purify us and bring us back into that place of humble submission so that power can flow through us into the world again and it is for our good and he also does it in small picture things the little areas of our life I was just talking to a good friend of mine who was telling me about how his different situations in life, he was, you know, at one time just making a ton of money driving a BMW all around town and miserable and felt just distant and separate and spiritually dead. God just brought destruction on him. And he came out of the dust on the other side with a bus pass and a heart that was just on fire for God and a sense of his overwhelming presence and power and love in his life that's that's what the discipline does man you know there's these passages in the bible that talk about god breaking bones so that he can heal them. And if you don't get that principle, you're like, what's up with that? I just broke my, my leg a while ago. It took three months to heal. It still hurts. Why would someone just break your bone just to heal it again? Because he breaks that bone, breaks our dependence on things that cannot satisfy us and then heals us even stronger. And through that process, we become empty and able to then channel and be present with him. Uh, man, that was true of my early Christian life, man. I remember, same story, making a bunch of money, doing exactly what I wanted to do, being, playing in bands, thinking I was all that. And then God brought destruction on me. And I came out of the other side... And I remember my early, early, early Christianity having this sense of overwhelming peace and joy because I knew that, I knew that, that it, anything could get taken away from me again. When you get, hit that awful rock bottom, total and complete brokenness, and you find there God waiting for you with comfort and peace and his love and security uh, and you experience that, you don't, I remember thinking to myself, I don't ever have to worry about anything again as far as material wealth or security. I can go right back into county detox from whatever position I'm in in life and be perfectly fine because what the true security that I have in Christ and in God and in his love cannot be taken away from me. Cannot. That creates peace. That creates freedom uh, and that creates security that cannot be damaged by the shifting sands of the financial realm of the world, uh, of the peace of our nation, of the political spectrum, who's in the White House, who's not. 
Those are things we should care about, but they don't have to affect our peace, the inner security of our hearts and our walk with God. And when they do, they become idols. So listen, I want you to imagine, imagine two situations. One, you're going to a bad dentist and you know he doesn't know how to use anesthesia right and you're going to be in a lot of pain and it's going to hurt. And then second situation, you're going to a personal trainer who is expert and you know that you're going to be put through workouts that are going to bring intense bodily pain but they're going to produce results and health in your body. The common denominator in those things are pain. The difference is one is meaningless suffering and the other is meaningful. It produces fruit. It's for your good. It creates health. Uh, and so the question we've got to ask ourselves is when we experience pain and suffering in the world, when we experience hardship, how are we thinking about God? Are you thinking of him as a bad dentist? That he just doesn't care about you? That he's shoddy? That he is creating meaningless pain? If you think like that, suffering is going to be ten times worse. Meaningless suffering is far worse because of its meaninglessness. Or do you think of God as like a personal trainer? That he is strengthening you through this, growing you in our, in, in, in emptying us out of poison to give us health and give us life. There's this great prayer that I heard somebody pray once. I always pray with people who are suffering and the, the prayer is, we ask God, uh, let these lessons not be wasted. And especially, Lord, let these lessons not be repeated. <laughs> Amen? No one gets stuck in a loop or God has to keep teaching you the same thing over and over. <laughs> he loves you. He will do that. But you can pray, God, I know that you are good. This is for my good and blessing. Help me not lose the value and meaning of these lessons. Let me not have to repeat them. The third thing, last thing, is God, God is gleaning us for eternal life. God is gleaning us for eternal life. We don't, probably don't even know what the word, most, many of you may, might even not know what the word gleaning means. Uh, it's an agricultural term, right? One of the most startling ideas that I picked up in seminary was that natural revelation, the creation, the created order, the way God created things in the world, uh, is the context of special revelation. God's, the word, the Bible, how God, uh, the analogies and the metaphors and the illustrations that God gives in the Bible to explain spiritual reality. So it's not so much the case that the prophets and the apostles were just looking, you know, just pulling illustrations out of the world. It's more the case that the world was intentionally created and designed to give us illustrations and truth about the spiritual realm. And so in this agrarian culture, uh, which we still somewhat understand, this whole passage is talking about, about 
planting and ingrafting this garden, uh, about threshing it. And then in through the threshing, the glee, threshing uh, and is the gleaning, the pulling out of the, the, the fruit itself. Uh, it says, he says, at the, what verse he says, verse I think 12, it says, in that day the Lord will thresh out the grain in Israel. Now, threshing, if you don't know what threshing is, it means you take the ears of wheat with the, with, the, with the sticks and the chaff and you put it all in a pile and you sit there and you beat it with sticks until the chaff flows up and goes up out into the air and all that remains are the, is the, the grain, the fruit of the wheat so that you can collect that. Uh, and so this is really, you know, a lot of this passage, a lot of the trouble that it's talking about in the world is talking about the threshing out of the grain. In order to glean, first God has to thresh. And so this passage also talks about the end of the age when God will, and this is hopeful for us, we talked this about, about this last week, God will remove sin and idolatry altogether from the earth end of sin and idolatry when it talks when it says the full fruit it says the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he god makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces no ashram or incense altars will remain standing it's talking about the the full fruit is the ultimate achievement of christ's atoning work that he's not just forgiving us of our individual sins, but he is, on a cosmic scale, going to make sin disappear altogether. Crush the altar stones of pagan altars until they are dust and take down all the accoutrements of pagan worship so it just doesn't exist anymore at all. And in the midst of that is the serious warning. In the midst of that threshing and the gleaning of the fruit is the removal of the chaff. You know, in that same passage where God, Jesus is talking about how he's the vine and we are the branches, he also gives a serious warning where he says, if anyone does not abide in me, meaning if anyone is not relying completely on me and getting life from me as the, the sole and only source of life, in the world, if anyone is not completely trusting in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And this says the exact same thing in verse 11. When the bows are dry, they are broken and women come and make them a fire. And it's talking about the sobering reality, as Brian talked about in the prayer, that those who refuse to receive the passion of God or the compassion of God will not receive it. You don't want to do that. But the better and the more hopeful news is this, is at the end of the age, God will bring every one of his children home. It says that God will gather us. Uh, it uses the, the traditional uh, expansive scope of the land of Israel, talking about God's people in a, metaphys in a metaphorical way. 
And in that, God is going to glean us one by one. That's not so much one at a time. It means more like each of us individually, that God knows each and every one of us and that he will individually take care to make sure that you as a grain, as a fruit that he has produced is not lost and will not be lost. Jesus says the same thing in John 10 when he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven and do not do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. No one will be missing of all of God's people no one is going to be missing on that day. And then it also speaks finally the last day of God's people being gathered from every race and people and kingdom of the world. It talks about Egypt and Assyria specifically as the main historical enemies of God's people. To speak about all the Gentiles of the world, of every race and people being drawn together on that last day when the trumpet sounds and God calls all of his people together to be with him forever. And so in conclusion to all of that, in these 11 verses, Isaiah tells us the purpose of history. That God displays his righteousness, his mercy, his wisdom, and his justice through salvation and judgment in the world that he is creating a people for himself. He shows us the meaning of life, which is to empty ourselves of our own self-navigation and instead to align with God and become channels of divine power in the world. And he talks about and teaches us the purpose of suffering, which is the means by which God accomplishes this humility, uh, this emptiness in us, which then begins to outfit us to live in the real world at the coming, second coming, second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the scope of history that are contained in these prophecies. We thank you about how they give us surety that your word is true. Lord, as we look around, there is no temple of Molech There is no temple of even the great Egyptian god Ra. There is no temple of Marduk. There is no temple of Dagon. These mighty, powerful nations that were so, according to earthly standards, better poised to transfer their religion across the face of the earth. And yet little Israel, dominated by all world power, broken, exiled, uh, and becoming nothing, out of that seeming weakness, you sent the Lord Jesus, the true Israel, to take root on the earth, to blossom and put forth shoots, and to begin to fill the whole world full of the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of salvation, and the fruit of a harvest of souls that you are creating for the next world. So... Lord, we thank you that you are providing all of our needs, that your protection is always over us.
And we pray that you would help us to rest in that. To rest in that, that your provision for us is good. And we pray that you would keep us from being tempted by the idols of the world, Lord. And to remain as best we can, sitting and quiet and content at your feet in worship of you as we wait when you make all of this final and bring the kingdom in forever, which is our hope, Lord, from Advent to Advent. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly and bring us home. And we pray this in your amazing and beautiful name. Amen.